Thank you, Beth. Okay, would you pray with me? Father, I um, pray like I did in the leaders' meeting this morning that um, I want to acknowledge that I am just as needy of your spirit to come this week as I was two weeks ago um, when I taught, as I was last week when I came to learn. Father, we need your spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to be able to receive your word. Um, I pray that you would help us to understand um, what you're communicating to us through Paul in this passage. Lord, help us to see the inheritance that we have as believers in Christ Jesus. Um, and help us, Lord, never to turn away from the inheritance that you've given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good morning, ladies. I'm going to adjust this a little bit. I'm going to be moving the microphone with me this week so that everybody can hear me in the back when I go to the whiteboard. So if I feel like a rocker carrying the microphone around the stage, um, bear with me. Um, okay. So last week, um, Pam led us through chapter 3, verses 15 through 29. We saw Paul explain the preeminence of the promise and the function of the law, both of which were meant to point to Christ in different ways. The law was meant to guard us until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. That's from chapter 3, verse 24. Paul also explained that all who are in Christ are Abraham's offspring and therefore heirs equally of God's promise. That was from verses 28 and 29. Today, we're going to see that Paul attaches the concepts of law and faith to slavery and sonship. And we're going to see him express his distress over the Galatians' seeming repentance of their faith in Christ and returning to keeping the law. So if you would, um, you can look on, on your green sheet, or if you'd like to take out your Bible, turn with me to Galatians 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. 
I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So I want us to start today with an exercise um, to see how Paul repeats himself. And why do I want us to do that? Because when an author repeats something in the Bible, it's like a flashing light saying, pay attention, right? What's funny is that those sections can feel really boring to us because we don't necessarily see the point right away, or maybe we don't understand the context, or maybe because repetition just feels like repetition. Um, I remember working through the land allotments when we were studying the book of Joshua a few years ago and realizing that each one of those allotments was a demonstration of God keeping his promise to each tribe. So instead of it reading like a dry geography textbook, it became alive with relationship. God promised this tribe this, and here's how he fulfilled it. So now Paul isn't talking about land allotments in our passage. He's talking about law and faith, slavery and inheritance. And what we want to see is how does Paul deepen the point he's trying to make about the connectedness of faith, inheritance, and freedom. Okay? So we're going to start by sketching out how Paul repeats himself. So I've given each of you a green worksheet with two sides. Okay? And what I'd like you to do with this green worksheet in a second is to pair up with the woman next to you and to first read through the Galatians 3 passage on the left-hand side, and then read through the Galatians 4 passage on the right-hand side. And then after you have read both passages, I want you to identify the similar themes as you work through the passage. So maybe you'll say, oh, 23 and 24 sounds really similar to verses 1 1 and 2. And so then maybe you would circle those and draw a line to connect them or highlight them both the same color, whatever works for you. I want you to identify the similar um, themes as you work through the passage, okay? And then after that, we're going to work on the whiteboard together and try to tease out what is the similar point that Paul's making, okay? So I'm going to give you five to seven minutes. I'll kind of watch the clock and see how we're doing. Go ahead and turn to the lady next to you. And then I will call you back together. All right. You'll notice on the whiteboard that I put a red star by verses 27 and 28 from chapter 3. Maybe that one was a little tricky. Anybody feel like that one was a little tricky? Okay. So let's keep that in mind. That one's a little tricky. We're going to go through this together. Okay. So let's start with verse 23. What would you, would anybody, any group want to share, what did you feel like was kind of the um, theme or the main point that you saw in that verse? What's Paul talking about in verse 23? Captivity under the law, okay. When, when was that captivity under the law? Before faith, before Christ came, good. Um, And what are they under? What's that captivity look like? Yep. In verse 23, it says guardians and managers, right? Yeah? Okay. So in this section here, I'm going to kind of write out what we've talked about. So, so before faith, we're held captive. <laughs> okay. So what are the verses that correspond with 
verse 23. Clearly, Galatians 2 is one of them. But also verse 1, right? Okay, so verses 1 and 2 should be in that section. Thank you. Okay, let's look at the next one. So verse 24, we're enslaved, right? Mm. Verse 24 says, so then the law, oh, sorry. Let me just check here and see if I got myself in the wrong place. Yep, sorry. So verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So this corresponds with, so on top of this, and I'm really thankful. <laughs> okay, um, so it corresponds with three and four, where we talk about in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So the common thread between the two is that we're enslaved to the elementary principles until when? Until Christ comes. Yep. Did anybody else have the experience of that I just had in front of all of you of kind of fusing those two passages together because they're so similar. Yep, so Paul's repeating himself, which is good in that it's helping the point to sink in for us. Okay, so verses 25 and 26 corresponds to which verses in chapter 4? So I have it corresponding to verse 5. Let's read 25 and 26 together. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And verse 5 of chapter 4 says, To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay? It's not super tight and perfect, right? Like all of our little numbers came in much after the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so, so, yes, this is approximate. I should have probably said that at the beginning. All right. So the common thread we see is... Um, that were redeemed, right, and made what? Sons. All right, let's look at our next one. This is the one I put the little asterisk by. Because when I was reading through it, it didn't really feel like a perfect parallel. So verse 27 and 28 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I paralleled this with, Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So there's kind of a description of what it looks like to be in Christ, right? Things that have um, been the result of being in Christ, okay? So I, I said that this kind of describes the results or the characteristics of being in Christ. Did anybody have this aligned differently? Be brave. Did it? Yes. So I see some of you going, yes, we did. And that's fine. That's fine. This is not Bible. My alignment is not Bible. It's fine for us to be able to see how these kind of align differently. But for me, this was really helpful to see a similar progression through these similar themes as we go through the two separate um, sections. Okay, so last one, verse 29. Verse 29 says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And then 4 verse 7 says, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So what is our common thread here? Heirs. Good. 
So I hope, <laughs> I feel like there's mixed results here. I hope that um, you were able to see some parallel construction in these two arguments, right? That there's a similar progression that Paul's making through an argument. But when we get to chapter four, it gets a little bit deeper, right? There's more, or we're going a little deeper into the argument. There's more that Paul's saying. So I'm hope, I hope that um, taking the time to do these exercises in literary context are helping us to be able to really see what the text says, right? Like I forgot which text was which earlier in the in the process. Okay, it's helping us to see what the text says so that we can work on understanding what it means. So in our first passage, Paul's highlighting the purpose of both the law and faith, and in the second, he goes a little deeper, explaining how they're connected to slavery or freedom or inheritance, okay? So what I want us to do now um, is to help us understand why Paul gets to the point of distress in verses 8 through 11. And to do that, we're going to work through verses 1 through 7 with this outline. And I haven't written it on the whiteboard, so you'll have to listen. Verses 1 through 7, Paul is saying, you are no longer a slave, but a son. Okay? Verses 1 through 2, Paul explains this heir-child-slave dynamic. Verses 3 through 5, Paul's going to apply that model to his situation with the Galatians. And then in verses 6 and 7, Paul's going to give evidence of their adoption to remind them of their status. Okay? Now, that will go home with you in the form of the email, so don't feel like you're going, oh my gosh, I haven't scribbled it all down, and I'm not going to be able to remember what she says. We're going to work through the passage together, and that's the most important part. So go ahead and turn your green sheet over. Let's work through this next section. Okay, so we're going to start with verses 1 and 2. Um, and I want us to remember that the topic that we're dealing with in our literary context right now is inheritance, okay? Ever since the beginning of chapter 3, we've been asking the question, who is a son of Abraham? So that we can know who will inherit the promises God made to Abraham. And Paul has emphatically said over and over that it's those of faith, those who are in Christ, who are the sons of Abraham, right? Chapter 3, verse 7 and 29. So now in verses 1 and 2, Paul's going to explain this a little more. So there's a timetable, right, by which the heir, the child, inherits. So the first question is, what does he, when does he inherit? He inherits on the date set by his father, right? I'm going to try not to lose my place as I'm working through this. Okay, but until that time... What is he under? Yes, he's under guardians and managers. And what did, this is not in your text, but extrapolate with me. What did they do? What did the guardians and managers do? Boss you around. Perfect. <laughs> I was going to say guide you, tell you what's right and wrong. Yeah, they can boss you around for sure. That's great. Okay. Um, we can infer from verse 1 that the guardians and managers are telling the child what to do um, because the slave has no, or the child has no more freedom than a slave does at this point, right? The guardians and the managers are the ones with the, the power. They can tell the child what to do. But here's the question. Is the child a slave? No. His status 
is that he's an heir. But is he functionally free? No. As part of why I had us do the last exercise, what does Paul call the law in our, in our previous chapter from last week, or previous section from last week? The law is a guardian. So the child's status is an heir. He's not yet free, still under guardians and managers. He will inherit on the date appointed by his father. All right, so next, verses 3 through 5. Paul is going to take this abstract model and apply it to his and the Galatians' current reality. There is an inheritance that the Galatians and Paul want to inherit. He says, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So for freedom, this middle section, is he free? There's a past tense, right? What does he say? We were enslaved. Okay. Then he gives us another inheritance when to compare. He says, what, is, what was it? Yes, but when the fullness of time had come. Okay, so the date appointed by the Father for inheritance in this section has already come, right? It's past tense. What happened on that date? Let's read verses 4 and 5. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, right? Okay. I'm going to put a question mark up here for status, and I'll tell you why as we go, so hold tight, okay? All right, so the child status, we haven't totally answered that one yet. Paul has said, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So there's maybe a sense of a possibility that he's unsure about, we have to keep reading to find out what his status really is. Is he free? Well, it says we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When does he inherit? Well, if he's an heir, he inherits when Christ rede redeemed those who were under the law, when he removed them from being under the guardian, the law. All of this is past tense, right? So the question is, are you in Christ or not? Right? That, that's where the status um, comes into play. So we can ask now, how do we know if their status is slave or heir? We know that the Father sent Christ to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. So what is the thing that Paul points to as evidence of their changed status from slave to heir? Let's keep reading. Verses 6 and 7. Paul declares their status. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Paul points to the past work of God in depositing his spirit in the Galatians as the present evidence of their status. He says, you are sons. And then verse 7. Um, verse 7 is probably my favorite verse in Galatians. So I'm just going to read it again because I like it so much. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So let's check in with our child model again. What is the child's status? Is he an heir? 
Yes, because he's a son. Is he free? Yes. He is no longer under guardians and managers because Christ has come. When does he inherit? I hear little whispers. Somebody talk louder. Now and later. Yes. We even say he did inherit, he is inheriting, and he will inherit. He already has Christ. The Spirit is currently in him, and he will forever be in eternity with God. If you read the um, article that was in your appendix this week that Pam mentioned, um, there's a quote from Pastor John that I thought was really helpful. John Piper says, Our inheritance as children of God includes at least this, the world and all that is in it, God himself as our final and ultimate portion and reward, and new glorified bodies that can enjoy more fully and deeply God and his gifts with no hint of idolatry. So do you see the point that Paul is trying to make? He's telling them, be who you are. You are a son of Abraham by faith in Christ who has received the promised spirit. You've been reconciled to God and you will forever enjoy him. What more do you need, right? Okay, so now let's turn to Paul's expression of his distress in verses 8 through 11. And I will read the outline that I have not written down for you and it will be in the email. So verses 8 through 11, Paul's saying, don't Go back to slavery. Verse 8, Paul reminds the Galatians of their previous status again. Verses 9 through 11, Paul contrasts God's choosing of the Galatians with their wandering. Okay? So I think this is a good place to address the elementary principles of the world in verses 3 and 9 and those that are by nature not God's in verse 8. Did anybody else like write this down, and though what are some things that are still hard to understand about this passage? I did. I have been writing that one down the entire study of Galatians. <laughs> what? What are the elementary principles? Um, okay, so in his commentary on Galatians, Tom Schreiner um, says that there are kind of two general ways that these um, verses are understood. So stoicheia to cosmu is generally translated to mean the physical elements that make up the world, like water, fire, air, and earth. Like So through kind of Greek literature of this time, that's what it means. That doesn't help me. <laughs> yes. Stoicheia to cosmu is generally translated to mean the physical elements that make up the world, like water, fire, air, and earth, which doesn't necessarily feel like it fits with what Paul is saying here, right? Soikeia alone can be translated elements. This can be understood to refer to the fundamental rules of life, okay? Um, it's also, there's kind of another uh, translation camp that understands it to be referring to um, demonic forces that rule unbelievers. So um, I want to acknowledge that this part is tricky, and there are very educated, smart, believing people in both camps. I'm going to tell you what, where I land, okay? Um, the way that Paul uses this phrase in parallel with spending so much time talking about the function of the law leads me to think that by elementary principles of the world, 
Paul is referring metaphorically to the law. Okay? The law was the most foundational understanding that they had of how the world operated and how to interact with God. And the way that the Jewish Galatians were using the law in this letter was not far from every other works-based religion that the Gentiles would have been familiar with, okay, which is kind of the dynamic of you do good things and then you earn good status, which for me seems like it fits with the book of Galatians. Okay, so we're going to read our last four verses again and keep going. So verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored, labored over you in vain. So after Paul has just demonstrated to the Galatians that their status is of a son and therefore an heir, he reminds them of their prior ignorance and slavery and also of God's knowing them. I love this quote from Shiner. Even though it is true that believers have come to know God, verse 8, there's a deeper reality that explains why they know God's saving love, namely God's knowledge of them. God's knowledge of his people harkens back to the Hebrew verb know, yada, where God's knowledge refers to his choosing of someone, the setting of his affection upon someone. Hence, he knew Abraham by choosing him to be the father of the Jewish people. He knew Israel and chose them out of all the people groups on earth. He knew Jeremiah before he was born and hence appointed him to be a prophet. So too the Galatians have come to know God because God knew them first. Because he loved them and graciously chose them to be his own. Despite this choosing of God... To Paul's dismay, he sees that they are turning back to the familiar dynamic of earning favor through doing works of the law. Paul says that by doing this, they are choosing slavery over inheritance. They are, in fact, on the brink of making shipwreck of their faith. Paul's message to the Galatians is clear here. Don't leave your inheritance and go back to slavery. So, as we're ready to close, and I'm looking at the clock, I want us to think through what are some of the good guidelines that we so easily get out of order. We might have a tendency to let um, good things we do or bad things we don't do slowly creep in and take the role that only Jesus has, the role of a savior, right? And when we treat them like our savior, we create a new law and we return to slavery. Um, I spent some time thinking about this um, over the course of my life, kind of from my childhood to present, trying to, because I grew up in the church, um, and trying to identify what were some of the things that I felt like really made me a Christian. So I made a list. I'm going to share it with you, and then we're going to close by singing a, a verse from the hymn. Uh, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. So here's my list. And I want to just remind us that these are all good things. Okay? Obeying mom and dad. 
obeying the Bible the way it was taught to me, not swearing, not listening to secular music, not watching TV shows with magic or too much kissing in them, wearing a one-piece swimsuit and not dating boys until my parents said I was old enough, reading my Bible every day and setting a timer to increase the amount of time I spent praying, sharing the gospel with others at school, wearing Christian t-shirts with provocative sayings on them to try to start conversations, praying at CU at the Pole, singing solos at church and for youth gatherings, participating in youth group and Christian drama groups, going to a Christian college, maintaining certain political beliefs that I thought were aligned with God's word, wearing a purity ring, never drinking alcohol until it was legal for me to do so, never getting drunk, never smoking or taking drugs, never going to parties where such things were happening, being outspoken in classes or the school newspaper about things I perceived to be sinful or unbiblical, always trying to defend the gospel in my religion classes, never living with my now husband prior to marriage, which method of birth control we used, being a stay-at-home mom, praying with and for our children every day, Bible verse, memory work with kids, how much time the kids don't spend on screens, attending both church and Sunday school, giving money to church, how homey our home is, using our home for hospitality, organizing chore charts to teach my kids a godly work ethic, waking up early enough to do morning devotions. I want you to hear my point. All of these things are good things, just like the law was. But none of them can add to my status as an heir of God. But unbelief in my heart still craves something I can do to prove to God that I was worth saving. But God doesn't want my doing. He wants my heart. He chose me before the foundation of the world, before I took my first breath in a state of total depravity. God knew what he was getting when he saved me. And he did it because he is love. We are going to see as we get further into Galatians that God is most concerned with us becoming who he made us to be. Image bearers that bear his loving likeness. He is not mostly concerned with our doing, but with our hearts. Our being will lead to our doing but it doesn't work the other way around, okay? Beth, I want to invite you to come up. We're going to end by singing a stanza from the hymn, Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It. And Beth, would you close us in prayer after we sing? Thanks. Thanks.